We've been in a series I'm calling History, His Story. And what's so amazing about that is that it's not this dry, dusty kind of thing. It's going through the scriptures and the, the, the old stories of the Old Testament, seeing how God was in action, how sovereign he was, how in charge he was. In fact, so much so that he would use real life events to speak to us today. Experts call that a type. They, it, it, it's what it is. It's an example for us lived out in how to do life. I want to talk to you this morning about something that'll change your family life, something that can change you from the inside out personally. It's called the blessing. I want to talk about the power of the blessing. In biblical times, the blessing was so important for children. As a father would lay his hands upon the head of his son and he would speak over him and he would talk about an amazing future and what he saw in him and what was going to happen in his life and that would be passed down generation to generation as parents would bless their children. Our story today opens up Abraham, we talked about last week, he's passed on, he's dead. Isaac, his son, is already old. In fact, he's, he's old and he's gone blind. There weren't no glasses back in that day. So when you got older, you just couldn't see anymore. So basically, that's where he is. In fact, he's so old that, that he really can't taste that well, probably. Um, and it's time to bless his kids because he thinks he's going to pass away soon himself. His children are two twins, Jacob and Esau. And it's the ultimate dysfunctional family. Rebecca's favorite is Jacob. Isaac's favorite is Esau. They have already picked their favorites. Esau's the oldest by just seconds. And so Isaac calls him in. He's his favorite. He says, go out and you're a big hunter. Go out and kill a deer and fix the venison the way that I love it. You know how I love how you do that. And, and I'll eat that and then I'm going to bless you. Well, Rebecca, the wife, overhears. And she grabs her favorite, Jacob, and she says... I'm going to prepare a goat. Isaac's so old he won't be able to tell the difference. I'm going to do it the way that Esau does it. And you take it in there and he really can't see. So you take the blessing. And so that's exactly what happens. Jacob deceives his father and gets the blessing. Esau comes back later and he says, all right, here it is. Take of, take of the meat and then bless me. And Isaac begins to tremble and he says, who are you? He says, it's Esau. And he said, I've already given the blessing. Esau, let me just read you the verse. You can see it there up on the big screen. When Esau heard his father's words, he let out a bitter cry. Oh, my father, what about me? Bless me too. You can hear the anguish in his voice. And that idea of the blessing as we give to our children this meaningful thing, it resonates down through the ages. And you can still hear it. You can hear it. Even today, Richard Lee wrote a song a few years back. And I want you to hear it. I've asked Trey to sing it for us. And, and it just kind of echoes that feeling of not receiving the blessing. So Trey, will you sing that for us?
live just down the hall Every day we said hello But never touched at all Thank you, Trey. I didn't have him sing that song just to play on your emotions, but it is this feeling that I wanted you to feel that it, that's what it's like not to receive the blessing. Richard Lee said that described perfectly as he wrote the song, his relationship with his own dad. But it doesn't have to be that way. In fact, Gary Smalley and John Trent wrote a book called The Blessing a few years back and they said there are four ingredients that ought to be present in every home to give the blessing. I want you to pull out your sermon notes. I've just got the scriptures I'm going to use today. But there's some places there around that you can just fill in if you want to some of these ingredients so that you don't miss them. When these four ingredients are present, Smalley says that children grow up and they're able to go out and they're able to function and be successful. The first ingredient 
is meaningful touch. We see that as the fathers and the mothers would lay their hands upon the kids. It was meaningful. It was a bestowing of the blessing. Isaac gave his blessing to his son. He kissed him and embraced him. And that's what we see. It's important that we do that. Jesus did that all the time with little kids. In the book of Mark chapter 10, it says they brought young children to Jesus that he might touch them so that he could hold them, so that he could put his hands upon their head, upon their shoulders. And, and so touch was a graphic picture of the transfer of the power of blessing from one generation to the next. Researchers continue to discover the power of touch as they see that it even uh, touch from a parent to a child actually rewires the brain of the child in a really positive way. And so we need to understand that. And you can find ways, no matter the age of your children, to appropriately touch them. I know dads a lot of times as our little girls grow up and, and it, they get to uh, you know, teenage years, it's like, okay, I don't know what to do now. But like with my girls, I used to just give them a foot rub sometimes because we'd be sitting on the couch watching something. And they got, you know, they still come home and one of the, I'm a granddad now and they still want a foot rub when they come home. You know, and it's just being there with them. My mom used to, my little brother, uh, Brent, the youngest of us, he wasn't very touchy-feely. And so she was always thinking, you know, he didn't want to hug or anything. But she would scratch his back every night. And, and so that's how she would do it. And, and she would, so he still, you know, he's a doctor in the woodlands today. And he still wants to go over and get a back scratch, you know. But there are ways that we can touch and we can pass that on to our kids and it, it, it's really important that we do that. Psychologist Ross Campbell says with our hands as parents, we have a way of assuring our children's emotional security and our success as parents. The second ingredient, words of affection and love. Words of affection and love. Proverbs 18:21 says, the tongue has the power of life and death. And God intended that we use it to uplift our kids, to encourage them. Neil Chetnik, in an article in, in the USA Today, he tells about the time that he and his father were going through some of his grandfather's papers. He said, it was the first time I'd ever seen my dad cry. And here's what his dad said, I'm crying not only for my father, but also for me. His death means I'll never hear the words I've always wanted to hear from him, that he was proud of me, proud of the family I'd raised and the life I've lived. It's easy to criticize. It's easy to say, oh, you dummy, you spilt the milk again, right? Or you're lazy, or you're fat, or you keep doing that, you're not going to amount to anything. Those are the tapes that some of us play in our heads from our parents, and it's so easy. You said, I'll never say that to my kids, and then you catch yourself saying some of those same things, right? What the Bible says is change that up. Begin to speak words of encouragement and acceptance and love. Get them off that performance-based treadmill. The third ingredient was assuring them of their value. Assuring them of their value. H.B. London was a, a great preacher. And he said that his father, too, was a, a great preacher. He said, I only wish I'd known him better. He was pretty much an absentee dad. I searched for a relationship with him until the time of his death. And dads, we have no idea what time spent with our kids and, and, and being there, showing them how valuable they are to us, means to them. Gordon MacDonald in 
his book, The Effective Father, he, he wrote, writes this. It is said of Boswell, the famous biographer of Samuel Johnson, that he often referred to a special day in his childhood when his dad made time for him and took him fishing. The day was forever fixed in his mind. He often reflected upon it. After having heard of that particular excursion so often, it occurred to someone much later to check the journal that Boswell's father kept and determine what he had said about the fishing trip from the parental perspective. Turning to that date, the reader found only one sentence. Gone fishing today with my son. A day wasted. It's so interesting that that was the day that his son always brought to mind that special day dads we don't realize the power of that moms assuring them of their value to us putting them in our lap and 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 looking directly into their eyes and and giving you know instead of like halfway there watching tv "Uh uh uh-huh i hear you i hear you have your little kids one of my children one time they i was watching tv they're talking to me and they came up and they turned my face toward them when they were just little you know, and, and I, I, I caught the meaning of that. It's like, I'm here. I want you to see me. The fourth ingredient was picturing a glorious future. Picturing a glorious future. It's important that we see their future. That one of the most misquoted verses in all of the Bible is Proverbs 22.6. And it says, train up a child in the way they should go. And when they're old, they won't depart from it and what we've said down through the years a lot of times is um, well what that means is get your kid into church when they're you know in kindergarten and then when they get to be older out of college or whatever they might get far away from God but they'll come back that's not exactly what it means when you dig into it what it says is if you will train your child up in keeping with their particular gifts, their particular bent in life, the way that God made them. If you will train them up in that way, when they're old, they'll fit right into that niche that God has for them, and they will be successful, and they will feel fulfilled. And, and, and so that's really important. In order to do that, we have to study them. God made your kids in a special way. You know that if you have more than one kid, you know? I mean, they're each so different. In fact, the, the worst parents to me to ever try to counsel are the kids that only had the one kid and they're really good kid, you know? And, and then so they think they're great parents. But if they would have just had the second kid, you know, that comes out of the womb chomping on a cigar, you know, I dare you, right? And some of you only got that one, so you think you're terrible. But no, here's the thing. Every kid is so different. And, and we have to study them. It's interesting when uh, Joseph, Jacob had a son by the name of Joseph, when his sons uh, were ready to be blessed by their grandfather, Jacob, that we read about here. Jacob's an old, old man at this time, and the two grandsons are Ephraim and Manasseh. And so he brings, Ephraim's the oldest, and and Manasseh, and he brings them, and, and, and what happens, he puts the oldest under the right hand, but what happens is Isaac, I mean, Jacob switches his hands because he studied the grandkids and he's seen something in them and he wants to speak speak something to each one based on who they are and he saw the leadership skills in in one of them and and, and so he spoke that into them because he had studied them. Study your kids and say, I see how God made you. You see how you're really good at this and you're successful here. Now, not what you want them to be. You're gonna be a doctor, son, and when you're old, you're gonna take care of me, right? No, not that. 
But how did God make them? You study that and you say, what I see, you're going to be the most amazing this or that, that you see as you study them that God built into them. I, I noticed that our younger generations seem to be having trouble really finding their niche place in life. And I thought, well, that might be because there's so many niches, you know? And then I started thinking, no, it's probably more likely that they never got the blessing. They never received the blessing. And so they're struggling trying to figure this out. Well, what do you do if you never receive the blessing? Because I would dare to guess today that there's a great number of us that we never, and we, we understood exactly what Richard Lee was talking about in The Greatest Man I Never Knew. We, we, we felt that and we know that. I, I want to talk to you a little bit about that because there's an event that happens 20 years after the one we just talked about where there's the deception and, and all of this. Isaac has died. Jacob and Esau, Jacob ran away after that because Esau said he was going to kill him. You can imagine the anger. And Esau's been gone, I mean, Jacob's been gone for 20 years, and now he's finally coming back home, but he doesn't know if it's safe or not. And so he sends gifts ahead to his brother. Jacob's become very wealthy. He left with nothing. He's become wealthy. He's coming back home. The blessing of his father has really taken effect. And so he sends some gifts on to his brother. He, he sends some servants to say, Jacob's coming, and he wants to reconcile, and the servants come running back out of breath and they said, Esau said, oh, Jacob's coming, is he? And he's headed here with 400 armed men. That doesn't sound good, does it? So Jacob's thinking maybe he's going to be wiped out. He and his whole family. And it's this whole thing of unfinished business, right? Time doesn't heal all wounds. Those that go all the way to the bone aren't healed by time. Something else has to, has to take place. So let me read you the story. You see it there in your sermon notes. You can turn if you want to in your Bible to Genesis 32 or look at it up on the big screen as I read it. One of the strangest passages in the Bible and we're going to figure it out this morning. During the night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two servant wives and his 11 sons. He crossed the Jabbok River with them. After taking them to the other side, he sent over all his possessions This left Jacob all alone in the camp. So Jacob's on one side of the river, his family and all his possessions on the other side. And it says, and a man came and wrestled with him until the dawn began to break. When the man saw that he would not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it out of socket with a touch. Then the man said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name? The man asked. He replied, Jacob. Your name will no longer be Jacob, the man told him. From now on, you will be called Israel. God fights. Or he who fights with God, either one. Because you have fought with God and with men and have won. Please tell me your name, Jacob said. Why do you want to know my name, the man replied. Then he blessed Jacob there. Jacob named the place Peniel, which means face of God. For he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been spared. The sun was rising as Jacob left Peniel. And he was limping because of the injury to his hip. Even today, the people of Israel don't eat the tendon near the hip socket because of what happened that night when the man strained the tendon of Jacob's hip. The Bible says before Jacob was born, he struggled with his brother in the book of Hosea. How could you struggle before you're born? He was a twin. He struggled in the womb. God must have seen it. He came out holding his brother's foot. 
and they called him Jacob, which means the manipulator. It's so interesting. And then it says later he struggled with God. All of our root struggles really are a struggle for control. A struggle with God for control. And God loves you so much that he's engineered some circumstances. He brings you to a crisis. This is the ultimate crisis. Life and death stuff. Esau's coming. He's got like a tiny army with him. He knows Jacob. Last time he talked to him, he says, I'll kill you the next time I see you. It doesn't feel good. And they begin to, he, Jacob's there by himself and he begins to wrestle. We're going to find out later this was with God. But what's the object of wrestling? Not the w, you know, WF wrestling, but the real wrestling. When I was in Oklahoma, there was a, in school, you had wrestling. And the objective was to gain control over your opponent, to ultimately pin them down, put them on their back. So it's a struggle for control. And that's what we see in Jacob's life. A struggle for control. It says in verse 25, the man saw he would not win the match. Have you ever been in a no-win situation? Maybe you are right now. That's, God allows this sometimes because God allows you to be flat on your back so you're looking up to him. Why? Because he longs to bless you and give you the blessing that you missed growing up. So he allows that crisis because We rarely change until the pain we feel exceeds our fear of change. We have a comfort zone, even if it's dysfunctional, right? And so we see that. We don't change when we see the light. We change when we feel the heat. And you know what I'm talking about. So the man touched Jacob's hip. And then Jacob, it looks really pathetic after that because his hip's out of joint. So now all he's doing is just holding the man's feet and I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me. Jacob's figured out something's going on here and the man says what is your name? He replied Jacob. This is a strange request but you have to understand the Old Testament. Names meant something. You know today we just speak names. I'm going to give this kid this name because I think it's a pretty name and if you really knew the meaning you might not even give your kid that name right? But names always meant something. They still do in a lot of countries. In Burundi The elders uh, of the the tribe that we're working with there, they spent like four days figuring out a new name for me. And they named me Mucho. And I thought, well, that's too much in Spanish, right? But it means light. And and they said, you brought light. And and that was the coolest thing because they're really talking about all of us in that. In, in, uh, you know, in Mexico when we were there, in Costa Rica, they would have little nicknames that meant something, you know. And that's what they called you. They didn't call you by your name. One of my best friends, he called his wife Gordita, little fatty. That wouldn't work here, you know, but they're just like little, and, and she loved it, a little term of endearment. Oh, little fatty, come over here, love you, girl. Um, and I remember the kids in one of the real poor areas, they would call me Pelon, which means big baldy. And I didn't really like it until the day that one day I came and they called, changed it to Panzon, which is big tummy. And I thought, go back to Pelon, you know. But that names meant something. Jacob means manipulator. It means manipulator, deceiver. And that's exactly what he did. He cheated everybody. He lied to his father who was blind. I mean, he lied to his wives. He cheated. He manipulated. It's an act of self-revelation. 
See, I want to say to all of you here, congratulations, you're a survivor. Some of us, if we would have had your upbringing, we would have just curled up in a ball and died. You didn't do that, but you developed some survival techniques, and they're not working for you now. Manipulation is one of those. That's what David, I mean, uh, Jacob developed. You, you realize that he deceived his dad to get the blessing. The only way some of us in our lives could get the blessing from our parents is to act like someone we weren't. To try to fit into something when we knew that wasn't us. And it has made us feel like a fake ever since. And that's what, that, that's what Jacob was doing. So he's wrestling with God, we find out. And God says, tell me your name. What he's saying is, I know you already. Can you say who you are? Because I know who you are. He says, I'm manipulator. I'm deceiver. His deepest work in our lives is when he deals with our identity. Who we are, the way we see ourselves. Our self-perception. Because we get locked into that. I read a story about a medical student who was trying to help a mental patient in one of the facilities and, and nobody had been able to help him this mental patient was con- convinced that he was dead even though you know he's walking around and stuff and, and so the the young physician the resident thought that he could help him out and he said I, I believe I've got a way to convince him with logic and he said do dead people bleed and the guy said no of course not they're dead and he took a pin and he pricked the guy's finger and blood came out and the guy looked at it and said well, I'll be. Dead people do bleed. That's us sometimes, right? We're that mental patient. We're locked into our old tapes that our parents have given us or someone gave us growing up. And God's going, I need to break you out of that. I'm shy. I'm a, I, I, I'm, I, I'm a loser. I can't stop this habit. Whatever. So God does his deepest changes by how we see ourselves and it's interesting he says okay you see who you are and we have to admit it and then he says but I'm giving you a new name I'm changing it to Israel and it's so interesting because that's a word play Israel Israel it's translated as one who fights with God literally it means God fights so it means that Jacob struggled with God not that he won, even though it says, you know, he won, he ultimately won. But in a sense, he lost the fight, right? And as in losing the fight, he won. And that's kind of the whole feeling. He struggled with God. God won. Jacob lost. That means that because God won in his life, Jacob ultimately won. And that's what it's trying to say, the paradox of life. Jesus said something very similar. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. He said... The one who wants to become great among you must be the servant of all. And so Israel has a double meaning. It carries a double message. God is continually trying to bring us to a place where we surrender control to him. And in surrendering control to him, we win. That's what it's all about. It says in verse 31, the sun was rising as Jacob left Peniel. And he was limping because of the injury to his hip. As he crosses over the river, he's dragging his foot behind him. But there's a smile on his lips. Somehow in that struggle, as God dislocated his hip with just a touch, what could God have done? From the very beginning, God could have just touched him and he would have turned into dust, right? But instead, 
God wrestles with him. He works with him. He deals with him. Do you feel him wrestling with you this morning? See, even this crisis that you're in, even this thing of laying you flat on your back, even all of that you've been through in recent days, it's God trying to bring you to the point where he says, tell me who you are. Tell me what your survival techniques have been. Workaholic? Manipulator? Liar? It's not going to surprise God. He already knows. See, he already knew that. What's the significance of the limp? Part of it is Jacob's lifelong survival pattern. Not only was manipulating, but he would manipulate and then run. Some of you are passive aggressive. Some of you avoid conflict at all costs. And God's going, I need to do something there. If you'll let me, I'll do something there. Jacob's not running anymore. He's limping now, all right? It's also a daily reminder that he's got to depend on God's strength. It's the strongest muscles in our body right there. And now he can't use them. He's got to depend on God for his walk. You know, if you're a true believer, there'll be a difference in how you walk. There's a weakness that comes in when people might say, you know, you're depending on God as a crutch. Well, if you're crippled, you need that, right? And all of us are dysfunctional. And God's going, that's okay. I want you to lean on me. I want you to step into me. I want to bring your weakness. He says his strength is made perfect in our weakness. This is an amazing thing. So you never got the blessing from your father here on earth. You never got the blessing from your mother. But God is saying, I am your heavenly father. And I see you don't have to pretend with me. That's what I love about our church. I love this church, Community of the Dysfunctional. We should have named it that, right? Because it's a place of blessing where we see each other authentically, clearly, and we still love each other. And we still root for each other. We still encourage each other. He blessed him there. What did God say? He blessed him there. It's interesting because Jacob said, what is your name? And it's almost like, really, if you could understand the Hebrew there, he's going like, I think you know it. God took human form. It's a pre-incarnation before Jesus came. He did this a few times, and this is one of them. It says he blessed him there. What did God say to Jacob? I don't know. It was for Jacob's ears alone. That's why it's not here. He wants to bless you this morning. Jacob, what's your name? This is from a writer named Mary Ann Burge. She wrote a long time ago, but I just, it just really hit me in the heart. It says, she says, I grew up knowing I was different. I hated it. I was born with a cleft palate. When I started school, my classmates made it clear how I looked to others. Little girl, misshapen lip, crooked nose, lopsided teeth, garbled speech. When schoolmates would ask, what happened to your lip? I'd tell them I'd fallen and cut it on a piece of glass. Somehow it seemed more acceptable to have suffered an accident than been born different. I was convinced nobody outside my family could love me. Then there was this teacher in second grade, and everyone adored her. Her name was Mrs. Leonard. Everyone wanted to be Mrs. Leonard's favorite. Annually, we would have a hearing test, 
and the teacher in each class would give it. Mrs. Leonard gave the test to everybody in our class. Finally, it was my turn. I knew from past years what would happen. We stood against the door and covered one ear. The teacher sitting at the desk would whisper and we'd have to repeat it back. And then we'd cover the other ear and she would whisper and we'd repeat it back. She would say something like, the sky is blue. And we'd have to repeat it back. The sky is blue. She'd whisper, do you have new shoes? And we'd say back, do you have new shoes? Picture her now. Mary Ann Bird, the little girl. She's got one ear covered. She's at the door. I waited there for my words. Those seven words that changed my life. Mrs. Leonard said in a whisper, I wish you were my little girl. I want you to close your eyes for a minute. I wish you were my little girl. Marianne's bird's life was never going to be the same again. But do you hear the father? If you could hear with your ears, your spiritual ears. Some of you, you, you can hardly believe that. If he really knew me, he wouldn't love me. He knows you. He sees to the deepest inner part of you. He sees all the ugliness. He sees all the survival techniques and all the manipulations. And He says, I wish you were my little boy. You step into that relationship with him this morning. I wish you were my little girl. Do you hear the father? Some of us, we've been struggling for so long. And it's time just to say, I see it. I see who I am. And to come to the father with our real name, our survival technique. And give it to him. It's not going to be easy. You've tried to control everything. You had to. You had to to survive. I, I, I understand. But it's time now to lay it down. You don't have to do that anymore. That's why Jesus said, come to me and find rest. Real rest for your soul. I'm going to invite you to do that right now. Just in the silence with your eyes closed. As you come to the Father who loves you like that. The Bible says that he loved us so much he gave us his only son. How much more won't he freely give us all things? He loves you. Listen, I wish you were my little boy. I wish you were my little girl. Do you hear him? Step into it now. Our great Father, you're here. We don't understand it. We don't, we don't know why you want relationship with us. We, we see ourselves now. We, we, we see all this control stuff and all this stuff we've tried to do. It's cost us, some of us, it's cost us marriages. It's cost us relationships. Some of us, workaholism, we've gotten very materially successful and yet it seems so empty we come to you now you're broken little children in the midst of this crisis we've been wrestling with you and we finally realize it 
and we're ready to give up control, we lay it down now at your feet, Jesus. You be the boss. Jesus, you be in charge. Jesus, we long for the rest that only you can give. We're so tired of being on the treadmill. Come kingdom of God upon us. Be done will of God in us and let nothing stop what you want to do in Jesus' name. Amen.